1: Your host is Nick Moran, and this
0: is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. I want to take a quick moment to wish all of you the best amidst this terrible health crisis and financial crisis. I've built friendships and professional relationships with many of you in the audience over the past six years, and I, uh, I truly hope that you and your loved ones stay safe. For those in the audience that I haven't connected with directly, and there are many of you, I appreciate your support of me, TFR, and Newstack Ventures. We're still in operation here, talking with uh, our portfolio companies, communicating with LPs, and looking at new potential investments. While it may not seem like now is the right time to be thinking about new investments, uh, we do have a job to do, and that's to invest our LPs capital wisely. We will not neglect this responsibility, and we still have about eight more investments to do from our current fund. Uh, Special thanks to uh, the team here at Newstack, JR, Mark, Lucy, Jiul, Liz, Ryan, and Austin, uh, our newest team member. I'm just really amazed by the dedication and care that you all put in every day. And to all the founders out there, this will be an extremely trying time. We hope that TFR can provide some coverage on the crisis as it unfolds and some, some guidance on how to adapt and persevere. With that said, I recorded the following interview with the great Mark Suster on March 4th, which was really a good week before the threat intensified here in the States. Uh, we discuss a range of different VC topics in the interview, but specifically, Mark had some real prescient thoughts on COVID-19 and its impacts that are now feeling very real. Uh, with that said, we'll kick off the episode. Best of health and safety to you all. Here is the episode with Mark Suster. Mark Suster is back on the program, joining us today from Los Angeles. Mark is the managing partner at Upfront Ventures. Upfront is an LA-based firm with investments in Bird, Maker Studios, Goat, and Ring, among many others. Mark also writes the influential blog, Both Sides of the Table. Prior to Upfront, Mark was the founder and CEO of two successful enterprise software companies, uh, the most recent of which, Coral, was sold to salesforce.com, where he became VC of products. Mark, welcome back.
1: Nick, thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Always good to connect. So last time you were on the show was December of 2016. Uh, any notable updates and, and changes at Upfront since then?
1: Well, it sounds like I haven't been on for a while, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, thrilled. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be back here. Boy, has life changed. Uh, yeah, you know, listen, we as a firm, you may know this, but we have both a Series A fund and what we call an early growth fund. Our Series A funds are $400 million, and we raise one every three years. And just so you and your listeners are aware, we do about 45% of our dollars in greater LA. And let's call that from Santa Barbara to San Diego. We don't like to consider ourselves a regional VC. So we invest nationally, about 25% of our investments are in the Bay Area, about 15% New York City. But what's important in investing in general, Nick, is that you have edge, that you do something or know somebody or have an unfair advantage in something that other people don't have. And with LA being the second largest city in the country and the third largest venture market and the fastest growing, you know, we think that's an edge worth having. What has changed, which is actually your question, is that we've opened an office in San Francisco, which we're thrilled with. We have a partner there that is new, and she's running our operations in San Francisco. Her name is Aditi Maliwal. She's out of Google and Stanford and was formerly at Crosslink, so had venture experience before. So, you know, listen, we're all in San Francisco at least once a month many of us there twice a month. We all have boards there, portfolio companies there. We're there a lot. But just having a commitment to the Bay Area where people know we're serious about being in that you know, region as well as being based in LA was important to us. And so we're thrilled to have a DT on board.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I do want to come back to this point about Creating edge and you know differentiating as a venture firm, but before we we jump in to sort of the meat and potatoes here, you know I was just chatting with Minnie Ingersoll over at Ten One Ten, she was saying how how great the upfront summit was uh, this year. I think it was just last month, and um, end of January, end of January, and she was saying how you know I need to attend next year, but I w- just curious you know for your your highlights from the summit this past year or well I would
1: say the First of all, the best way to lobby for anything is to do it when you've invited someone to be on a podcast, so (laughs) that's smart and clever, and you have my email address, so just reach out to me privately. So the highlight, honestly, we try to highlight what is uniquely great about Los Angeles. That's what's important to us. And so our view is we're highlighting LA-based entrepreneurs, we're highlighting LA-based funds, but we're also highlighting what unique... Things LA brings to the market. And we know that having influencers is something that makes us different. In a world in which you no longer rely upon big media companies to go from a product to a user, but where influencers can help you reach users more cost effectively and a wider group of users, understanding how to work with influencers matters. The movies we make, the stories we tell for society are driven from Los Angeles, so having people talk about, for example, gender equality and how we're trying to create more media to you know, raise awareness of gender equality is a topic we took on. We took on uh, the topic of white privilege and what does it mean to be white and to have privilege and, and maybe not even to have realized the privileges that you have that other people don't. But the big topic this year was sustainability so bill gross the founder of idea lab who created the most profitable part of the internet which is sponsored search has decided to dedicate the rest of his career to funding and building companies to address climate change and i say you know honestly he stole the show he was like the one person that everybody was raving about his presentation and it will be available on youtube all of the all of the talks will be on youtube if you look on uh, upfront summit yep. on youtube you know we put our videos there and then in terms of climate we had uh, appeal sciences which is a portfolio company of ours that has found a way to take the molecules from stems and plants and create a film around the outside of a plant that seals in moisture and prevents oxidation the important thing about that is 45 percent of the u.s produce is wasted before it's eaten about 70 percent in developing countries and so if you really want to conserve water and increase you know total available food for a growing population, you've got to be able to preserve it longer. And it does it without refrigeration, herbicides, or pesticides. And he appeared on stage with the former CEO of Whole Foods. And then we took on fish sustainability. So we had a company called Insect, which is like the word insect, but with a Y instead of an I. And they found a way using vertical farms to grow worms at industrial scale, which I know sounds a bit weird. Uh, But the the truth is that we're defeating the world's fish stocks and we're doing it because in particularly China, but in other growing economies where more people have moved off the farm and into, you know, urban environments, their diets have changed from purely carbohydrate to carbohydrate plus protein which puts pressure on pork and you know, poultry and beef, but particularly fish and shrimp. Mm-hmm. And so we've really started to have problems with something that should be sustainable, which is, you know, animals and, and fish. But we've put pressure on that. And so the world's people growing fish supplies are starting to feed soybeans and wheat to fish, which they weren't designed to eat. So by producing worms at industrial scale, he's able to put that into fish diets. And in the wild fish eat about 15% of their intake is already insects. And so he's been able to actually prove over a three year period of time, he can decrease fish mortality, increase fish yields, and do it in a productive way where they don't have to put hormones or antibiotics in the fish themselves. So those are the kinds of topics we took on and the people who took on the topics of gender diversity and inclusion are, you know, people like Zoe Saldana, People like Eva Longoria, people like Reese Witherspoon, like people who are really influential and change makers, Mm -hmm. you got to hear directly from them, which was great.
0: Yeah, I even noticed a a talk up on uh, YouTube from the summit with Albert Wenger and and Fred Wilson talking about uh, the impact of climate. And I think Fred even said it's, it's the most sort of important crisis or most important issue of this decade.
1: I mean, basically, Albert has basically said he's going to dedicate the rest of his career to investments that fight climate change and that we, overall, as venture capitalists, need to take it seriously. And the good thing about venture capital is we can both try to apply what interests us from a sciences perspective. We can apply what interests us from a political, geopolitical perspective. But if we're right about fighting carbon, And you know, upfront has been spending a lot more time not just at sustainability, but looking at fighting carbon. If we can do that and if we're right that it's urgent, it also is where the dollars are gonna flow. So seven years ago, we made three bets in agriculture technology designed around sustainability. And honestly, when we did, like people were scratching their heads. And I I sort of said to my LPs, if I'm not making you scratch your head a little bit, I'm probably not doing my job because the <laughs> job of a VC is to be funding things that you really don't know as someone who doesn't live in the worlds that we have to live in. So I place very small bets in the category. And as a result of spreading enough bets, we ended up in this magnificent company, Appeal mm-hmm. Sciences. And you know, really, it could help change society. Just to give you an example, Kroger, the largest grocery chain in the U.S., has announced publicly that they're standardizing all their produce on appeal. Wow. If you look at the largest grocer in Germany, which is called Etika, they control north of 30% market share in Germany, I'm told, also is standardizing on appeal. So if these people, the largest grocers in the world are standardizing on a product, you know that says something about the impact that it's both having and will have. So it's heartening to know that other VCs are taking up the challenge, and I think you're going to see a lot more dollars going into areas that are going to have an impact on the future of society.
0: You know, I always love your perspective in, in your content, and I, I, think I, I think I noticed that you, you forced a, a four-month hiatus on the blog. Or are you back to writing now?
1: Yes, I am gearing up to do a bunch more writing. So what I plan to do is, you know, I have a series of talks that I've been doing privately And that's kind of how my blog evolved anyways, which is, you know, talks that I was doing on a regular basis. I just decided why not make these public?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. One, I've done a whole series about how to build a venture capital franchise from, you know, how do you position yourself? How do you attract LPs? How do you find deals? What's the best way to find deals? How do you market the deals that you've done? How do you get corporates? How do you attract entrepreneurs? So I have this Talk that I've been doing, and I've decided I'm just going to break that out into a series of 25 or so posts and write them. I've been doing a whole separate set of talks as I've done some advisory work for LPs themselves on how do LPs do direct investing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, I think a lot of mistakes are made. And I'm trying to give an insider's perspective. Maybe both sides of the table now could apply to VC and LP, right? Where we're sitting on opposite sides of the table. But now I'm trying to hop over to their side and say, what would I do if I were you? (laughs) And so there's a series of 20 or so posts that I want to do on that. So I got about 45 posts queued up in my brain. And then I think I mentioned to you before we got on this podcast that I'm actually doing a keynote next week at Saster. And I've written a brand new presentation just for Saster, which I love doing because I love Jason Lemkin and yep. I love the work that he does called Funding in the Time of Coronavirus, meant to be a play on Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, Love in the Time of Cholera. Mm-hmm. And so I'll probably publish that and try to do a series of posts on that.
0: We're going to have to get you a round table, Mark. Then you can be on the same side and and the opposite right? side of all these partners. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. Um, so let's dive into that. How about on the topic of building a VC franchise? You know, not enough time in just this show to, to cover the range of of topics here, but can you, can you highlight some of the sort of key areas that you shed light on in, in this presentation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll do it super quickly. So yes, I can't do a deep dive, but I'll basically say, I think the premise that most people start with is not a clear understanding of where they're going to differentiate. And it's, you know, one thing to say, okay, we were all out of Dropbox or Stripe or Facebook or wherever, and we know people other people don't know, and we're going to just fund our smart friends. But I don't think that's sustainable. So I think you need to think about, I think in any investing, like sometimes in VC, newer VCs can be a little bit naive to how funding markets overall work, just because they probably don't have, you know, 20 years of investment experience. But any investing is about having edge. Right? Like for you to produce returns that other people don't have, you really truly have to have some insights and some access that other people don't have. Otherwise, I mean, you can make money otherwise, but it's mostly luck. Yeah. And to be sustainable over time, you have to know something or somebody or have some angle that other people don't have. So I think really focusing on what's uniquely you, you know, in classic marketing terms, they call it positioning you know, what is your market positioning and how are you going to build something that's sustainable and defensible through good markets and bad? So that's like the starting point. And then how do you define a brand? A brand is not just your logo or your name. It's like how you represent yourself in the marketplace and how people and the market perceives you. So I talked through a whole bunch of brand building exercises and how to build a brand. I think most VCs were taught, newer VCs were taught, And frankly, publicly, we're supposed to say that our customer is an entrepreneur. And I actually don't think that's true. So I try to get people to realize that the entrepreneur in many ways is a product. And I don't think of that pejoratively because I'm a former entrepreneur and I wake up every day thinking about the entrepreneurial journey of the companies that I back. But fundamentally, your customer is your LP
0: Hmm.
1: because they're giving you money. And that money is your sustenance. Like That money is how you pay your bills and your staff. And that money is also how you make investments that drive returns and create jobs. And your simple job, if I could just describe it in the most simple of terms, is to give back more money than you got and give back more money on a returns basis than they could by investing in other asset classes. And the way that you do that is with your product. And your product is a diversified portfolio and again i think not enough vc firms think about portfolio construction so how do you create diversity how many investments should you do what is your you know reserve policy how many first checks do you want to write what is your ownership threshold and usually people are on fund 3 or fund 4 before they even Start to think about that, yep. and I think it's important to understand how do you create diversity in a portfolio fund, and you know what do you stand for. And you know, I'll just give you some stats just so, to give you a feel for how we think about it. Like our median first check is three point eight million dollars. Our median ownership is twenty one point two percent. We do forty five percent of our deals in Greater Los Angeles, from Santa Barbara to San Diego. And we look to create diversity across investment types. So we have market leaders who lead practice areas in computer vision, applied biology. We have a practice around marketing automation. We have a practice around security software. We have a practice around direct to consumer businesses, particularly targeting women. We have a practice around marketplaces. We have a practice area around video games. And we have partners who lead each of those practices, right? So that we're not just generically spraying dollars, we're trying to invest in areas. And, you know, like my partner, Kara, who's been very successful in investing in security software and is building a practice, I keep saying to her, like, keep doubling down because your networks are only getting better. Your knowledge is only getting better. Your referral sources are only getting better. And as you do that, you become a better investor than other people in that category, yep. right? So, so that's how we think about it overall. We're eight investment partners and we try to have areas that enough of us understand, but that don't have deep overlap. So anyway, so that's the crux of the presentation that I give people. How do you get in front of entrepreneurs? How do you, how do you do one to many communications? Like one to one isn't effective. Like you will not be effective in your job if everything you do is coffee meetings, right? It just doesn't work. You know, you can't achieve scale. And so anyway, that's the basis of my presentation. Sorry to go on
0: and on. No, it's amazing. It sounds like really good asymmetry in the portfolio too. So what's your edge? I mean, I've made a little list and I've I've got a bunch of different things that you do and Upfront does, but I'd I'd love to hear it from your perspective. Uh, What's Upfront's edge?
1: So, you know, I've discussed some of it, which is geography and geography matters, Because if I'm competing for a deal on Sand Hill Road, it would be naive of me to think that there are eight other amazing firms talking to the entrepreneur at the same time. Yeah. So geography matters. Number two, and this is not widely known about Upfront, but in the last decade, we've done 12 cross-border deals between France and the US. 12. So what a lot of people don't know is the founder of Upfront is not me the founder, his name is Yves Sisteron, and he's from Lyon, France, and he's lived in the U.S. for 40 years. And is, you know, if you met him, you'd think, wow, he's as American as the next guy. But he grew up in France and has relationships that other people don't have. And France has amazing sciences, amazing engineers, but they typically haven't globalized their businesses because they have, you know, what is it, I guess, almost 60 million people and they have a large enough domestic market whereas Israel that has roughly 6 million people they have to think global from day 1 and so here's the difference is France has woken up to a new reality that the EU is not its only savior and that it needs to build global businesses and so we're not going to do the seed round in France but if they raise 3 to 5 million dollars in capital and are looking at someone who really knows how to operate on both sides of the pond. I think you know, upfront's competing with eight people, not 800. And what many people don't know is I used to live and work in France. Um, I lived in Europe for 11 years. I am a dual citizen of the UK and the US. And so between Eve and myself, and we actually have people on the ground in France. We have uh, Julien, you know, is out of Airbus Ventures, now working for us in Paris. So we're leaning into vectors where we, again, know something or somebody or have some access, not to ourselves. You never have any market to yourself or you're in a shitty market, but, but that is less competitive than the mass population. So me personally, just so you know, like, I mean, having built and sold two enterprise software companies, I spent a lot of time looking at SaaS related businesses, but I've decided to focus my area personally on computer vision. And what I mean is cameras, lasers, infrared sensors that interpret the physical world. So the IO input output that interpret the physical world better than humans do. And I've done like five or six investments in the category. And as I said, like the more I do, the smarter I get, the more access I have, the more I learn, the better investor it makes me in that category.
0: Love it. We may have a, We may have some portfolio companies here at Newstack that could be a fit for um, upfront front at some point. Great. In the future.
1: Well, let's let's uh, schedule a call. And, <laughs> and well, I will I will tell you, Nick. In all truth, you know, one of my biggest themes is playing offense, not defense. I try to tell every VC to do it. It's like defense is. I get an email from a friend saying, "Hey, I funded this company. You should look at it." Yep. Well, at the time they do that, like presumably, if they're good at their job, they send it to five other people what i need to do is know about the deals before they're being marketed and i need to proactively figure out which of those fit my you know kind of investment strategy best and i need to get out and get in front of them well before they're fundraising yeah and get to know them early and show that i have you know deeper insights or you know better follow through or you know would be valuable to them and you know that's my goal so you know i call it doing a portfolio review with people who invest earlier than you do and Nick I would love to do a phone call and understand you know where our overlaps lie.
0: Always happy to. Always happy to. Right. You know it's it's challenging so we're mostly pre-seed investors and I talked to my team about this but we really kind of set the venture clock and we have to be really careful about when we invest and make sure that it's the right time for the founder and the right time for us. But these things are not on the grid. These things are not you know published these startups Prior to us making an investment, typically, there's no press on it. They're not in pitch book. They're not on, on Crunchbase, for instance. And so it's kind of a unique challenge, I think, being a pre seed investor because, in order to hunt and to be on offense, it's just like it's a unique approach to deal flow, you know, finding but, these opportunities. But,
1: but Nick, if I could jump in and say, you know, I am a pre product A round investor. The only difference between you and me from the way you describe it is I'm looking to write bigger checks. And and I mean that, like, look, I fund, you know, here's offense, okay? I spent, I don't know, three or four years getting to know a guy who was working with Liz Murdoch. Initially, he was advising her as a venture investor, and then he came in to run one of our companies. And I just thought, I mean, first of all, I did it just like, because he's a nice guy, and I thought, I'm happy to mentor people. But then I thought, this guy has insights other people don't have. And... When he was running a company for Liz, he was running a company on Snapchat that produced True Crime. So they have a show called Solve. It's on Snap. It was, if I'm not mistaken, the third most watched media product on Snap, still is, and the highest completion rate. But I said to him, like, that is not a company. You know, that's a distribution channel. Mm -hmm. A Snap media company, that's not a company. So great, you have this awesome product sitting in your distribution channel, the only way you can build a business is if you go actually build a product where you can drive traffic from Snapchat to actually use a product. And what you should do is build a video game. And what I mean is literally that, a video game, like a game based on video. And I think the worlds of video, like what we watch in linear storytelling and games, you know, whether that you know, be Fortnite, whether that be FIFA or Madden, you know, World of Warcraft, whatever, those worlds are merging. And I said, this is like, you've proven that you have something that has product market fit with users, but you don't have the right monetization. And fundamentally, media, the media business, media is not broken. Like people consume more media today than they ever have. The problem is the economic model is broken. So he said to me, Well, that all sounds good, but I don't know. Like, how do we get Liz on board? And I said, Why don't we go see her? So we went to see Liz and we said, We think it's better if you spin this asset out, create a new co. Let's go build a video game. We've done it before. We did it with this uh, company. I don't want to say we did it, like this company that we funded locally called Seriously that built a product called Best Fiends did something very similar. And I think we could have some success. And, you know, It's a new proposition, so it took a couple of meetings, and she said, let's go for it. And we have built something that I promise you, one year from now, everybody's going to be talking about. The product is so phenomenal, and our metrics are so much better than, because we've already tested it in Canada, so much better than you will see in other games. I think it's really going to resonate. The reason I say this whole long story, Nick, is if you look at that company Solve, I didn't fund a company in PitchBook. I funded a guy who was not even founding the company yet.
0: (laughs) Okay. But that's
1: what I'm looking for. Another example is a company called Projector that does visualization inside of the browser. So you can do things like create media assets that'll go on Instagram or Twitter. You can also create slides, you know, a better version of Google Slides. You can create short movies, MPEGs. And you can embed multiple things like a GIF and an image to do visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they they said, I want to create something that is a better visual storytelling. So it was the head of product for the consumer part of Twitter with the head of engineering for the consumer part of Twitter. And this gentleman, Trevor, who prior to that was doing product on the consumer product of YouTube. And I had met him several times across both companies. And they just had this idea that they wanted to go do it. And I started riffing and saying, you know what? That's a problem I've always had. Because I look at how do entrepreneurs better tell stories that help them do things like raise money, like attract staff, like get press, like talk to business partners. And they're not particularly good at it. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of techniques I learned from people like Barbara Minto or Nancy Duarte, who kind of talk about how to do visual storytelling And, you know, I'm in, let's go build a product that does that. Now, obviously I'm not building the product, but there was no pitch book. Like they hadn't created the product, they hadn't created the company. And I'm like, let me give you some money and let's go, let's go on a 10 year journey together. And, you know, like I said, the only difference is that I can write $4 million to start to give them the resources to stay off the radar screen for a couple of years.
0: Yep. Now I get it. I didn't realize you were doing pre-product and, you know, first check in. At the level that you th- invest, but it's.
1: I think as a former entrepreneur, like that's where my heart always will be. It's like ideation with super talented people where we say, I think there's an open lane here. Like if you look at appeal sciences, when I first met James Rogers, he had just graduated his PhD program at UC Santa Barbara and he had this idea about preserving fruit and veg. And even and I had been working on this thesis of water conservation. And I don't know, like he's just super smart, talented guy. And I said, "Fuck it, you know, let's let's go try and build this." And we even sent one of our most senior principals and said, "Why don't you go work there for a couple of years and see how you get on?" And you know, I don't know. It's gosh, what is it? Five and a half years later, they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and you know, it's 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 an awesome story.
0: Love it, love it. I bet Bill Gross would be proud. You know, there's some some company building going on as well
1: Well, no but no last thing i want to say on that topic nick is i mean you can ask bill like get him on your show and tell him. Yeah. i'm a relentless pain in the ass like every time i talk to bill i'm like <laughs> i'm like bill you told me you have a company that's solving carbon emission you told me how they're doing it why are we not funding it yet like you're funding it take my money let's go do this together he's like i know i know i want to but i need to make more progress no i want to fund it now I believe in your vision now. Let's go do it.
0: You know, it's funny you bring that up because we just had uh, Jason Calacanis back on the program and he was saying that of all the investors out there, Mark Suster works harder than anybody and just oh, really gets involved.
1: thank you, Jason.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, in light of that, what is your playbook? You know, what ways do you get involved? Is it just custom for every startup or do you have kind of it's, it's
1: It's different for every startup and it's different for every stage of startup. And, you know, some entrepreneurs really want you more involved and, you know, come see you a lot and spend a lot of time and call you a lot. And some just kind of want to be left alone for two, three months. And I can, I can work in any style, you know, with, with people. I like to be involved. I like to be engaged, you know, but somewhat it's down to entrepreneur and, uh, and it waxes and wanes. Like, you know, as companies get later, you really need to give them a little bit more rope. And then I tend to jump in on things like, are you upgrading your executive team You know, you have to stop doing all this work yourself. You really need to get leverage. And, you know, how are we going to build out the team? You know, I often say for VCs, like, you know, truthfully, and this will sound like, I don't know, a cliche or Pollyanna ish, but the single most important thing we do is find and identify and have judgment on backing a founder. That's 70% of the job. And I would say, or maybe it's 65% of the job and maybe 25 to 30% is then as you work with them and get to know them, knowing their strengths and knowing their weaknesses and being able to persuade them over time to build out their staff to compensate for their weakness. And the really biggest impact we make is how we build out their executive team with them and push them to hire the right people at the right time. And I, this is a conversation I have with entrepreneurs In our portfolio all the time.
0: Interesting. Interesting. You know, Mark, you touched on content and video content. You know, I've noticed content companies are becoming or beginning to optimize around these quick one to five minute gaps that everyone has in their day, you know, on their commute between meetings, where this short form content can be consumed beginning to end. You had a chat with with, uh, Meg Whitman, uh, the CEO of Quibi at the Upfront Summit. And I wanted to read a quote from your blog post about the interview. You said her analogy of content like the Da Vinci Code, which had 464 pages and 105 bite-sized, fully realized chapters. In essence, you're not intimidated by the size of each episode. So you dig in and you might just read eight chapters in a sitting before realizing you've read 35 pages. And so it is with video. So clearly Quibi is, you know, trying to capitalize on the short-form video content with A-list celebrities and now they've got over 1.75 billion in venture funding. What do you think Mark of this is this a significant emerging trend or is it kind of overhyped and and overfunded?
1: Well, let me start by saying I really have to give Jeffrey Katzenberg a little more credit for that quote because I know I was on stage with Meg Whitman at the Outfront Summit, but Jeffrey had been telling me that for the last two or three years, so it was already an analogy in my head. The idea is this, and I, I can give it to your listeners in a way that I think will resonate. When you're home and you think, you know, I, I want to check out from the world for a period of time and I've been working too hard, I've been at my email. I want to break. And then you go to Netflix or you go to Amazon. It's really hard at 10 o'clock at night to say, I want to watch a movie like during the week, right? Yep. You know, we all have busy lives. So what do you do? You say, let's, let's watch a, a show. Let's pick a series. And you start with a, you know, it's typically 22 minutes is the average length of a TV show, uh, 22 to 44 minutes. And so you say, let's watch Breaking Bad. Or you say, you know, let's watch Game of Thrones or let's watch, uh, you know, whatever, whatever show you want to watch, Curb Your Enthusiasm.
0: Curb, Silicon Valley, whatever.
1: Silicon Valley. But what happens is you sign up for a half hour and you watch four of them. (laughs) And two hours later, it's 12.15 and you're like, crap, I was going to go to bed at 11.30, right? Yep. So... It's hard to make that commitment to say, I want to do something for two and a half hours of my life or two hours of my life. It's hard to make that commitment. And so when the entry point to any product, I mean, this is not just video, it's not just audio, like any product, when the entry point is easier to get started, and then when you're in there and you're enjoying it and doing more of it, which presumes that you have a great product you're more likely to continue doing it. So I was having this conversation with a video game company yesterday and we were talking about when is the right time to put up a paywall. And I was saying like, you need to push it back because the person needs to feel like they can get engaged with your product a little bit more, fall in love with the product and the journey and make enough progress where they say, you know what, I'm now ready and willing to continue the journey. And so that's what I think the point was. And the point is like reading I read a lot. I tend to read on weekends and vacations. I have a hard time at 1030 saying I'm going to read because I know that I pick it up and there's a you know 40-page chapter and I don't want to read like a quarter of a chapter. And I think the analogy that Jeffrey and then Meg had is right, which is when you have a book and you know it's like five pages in a chapter, you are like, oh, I'll just read a chapter or two. Yep. But once you start that, then you're eight chapters in and you stayed up till 1215 and you know that's healthy and good.
0: Yeah. And I mean, just on that point of Quibi, I, I think they successfully sold out of 150 million in first year ad inventory, even before they launched, which, well, they, you know.
1: They have unfair advantages. Okay. So I think the jury's out on how the market will ultimately react to their product. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Like I'm huge fans of both Jeffrey and Meg, but here's the thing. When you're Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, you can sell $150 million of ads. (laughs) And when you raise a billion dollars in your seed round, and when you're producing content with J.J. Abrams and Tom Cruise, you're not going to struggle for that. And then the second thing is, because of who they are, they've actually done output deals with mobile operators. So the competition between like AT&T, Verizon, and all these players, they're in a war for eyeballs. And these are not eyeballs. They're in the war for consumers. Yeah. And so if I can have something unique, Quibi, on my phone, and I use that as a marketing wedge to drive 100,000 new subscribers to T-Mode that otherwise might have picked Sprint, Mm -hmm. otherwise might have picked Verizon, that's a win for me. So I think they will get bundling done, and that will subsidize the cost for the consumer. And on the other side, they will get advertising done. And I think they have kind of a two year window to prove out the concept. Eventually, consumers are going to have to pay. And so we'll find out whether they build high enough quality video that's a differentiated enough experience that I'm willing to pay for that alongside Disney, alongside Netflix, alongside Hulu, mm-hmm. and alongside like my TVOD stuff on Amazon. And I think the jury's out. It'll come down to whether or not they have a compelling enough content that's that's differentiated from other platforms. They're obviously betting they will. And like I always tell people, I would never bet against Jeffrey Katzenberg.
0: <laughs> I mean, is there an element here where companies are desperate for another digital marketing acquisition channel with you know Google and Facebook being... Instagram being saturated and, you know, marketers are, are looking for other forms of, of digital acquisition?
1: I think the statement you made is true, but I don't think it applies to Quibi. So the statement that people want to reach, like, it's really Facebook and Google. And Amazon, like those three, control so much inventory of how you get access to consumers. And the job of any product you create, whether you're a physical product or your digital product, is how do I cost effectively reach end customers? And it's very hard to do in a world where you have limited channels to find your customers. So I give you an example. I'll sound like I always just plug my portfolio. I don't try to do that. But it, because <laughs> because I know the companies better, it like helps me with real-world examples. So we backed a company out of the UK called Infosum. Again, a founder I backed before he even created a product. He came to me, I want to say, four-plus years ago. I had worked with him one time before. And he said, Mark, there's a real problem coming that no one's ever heard of. And I said, what is it? He said, GDPR. And I said, what the fuck is GDPR, right? Like Mm -hmm. now we all know GDPR, but at the time, four or five years ago, it wasn't part of the lexicon. And he explained to me that this legislation was going to make it harder for publishers and for people to share data. And one thing people don't know about GDPR is if you control customer data and you give that to a third party and that third party leaks your data, you're liable for it. And so an example is a lot of supermarkets have data and they give that data to marketing companies like Catalina Marketing that then help consumer product companies market to their customers. And in the old world, you could hand Catalina Marketing or the equivalent, some of your data, let them market to your customers and trust them not to leak your data. But in a world in which, let's say in Europe, where you're liable, if you do that, you're not going to share the data. So what Infosum did is, they built a way to build data bunkers, so all of your data behind your own firewall. And they built a way to create joins where you could create data across companies where I can search your database without revealing PII, personally identifiable information. And I thought, what a great product for the future that we're going to need and people don't even know they need it yet. So like, that's my job, again, to have vision about where the markets are going and do I believe the story or not. So where are we today? Fast forward. What they've done is they've worked with media companies. Let's say you're the New York Times. Let's say you're the Financial Times, The Economist. Let's say you're People Magazine, whatever, and you have access to users. No marketer in their own right, let's say you're Stance Socks. Let's say you're, I don't know, Allbirds, whatever, your are Parachute Home, and you want to reach customers. You're not going to upload your database and hand it over to people.com so that you can find cohorts of customers to market to, because you're not going to trust people.com with your data.
0: Sure.
1: But you did that with Facebook. You uploaded all of your emails so that you could find your customers and you could build audiences and figure out how to target those audiences through Facebook. And that's why your marketing campaigns in Facebook are so effective, Because they have your user information, they have audience information, they can marry those two things together, and they can say, oh, women who are 35 to 50, who live in urban environments, who earn more than $75,000 a year, who have two kids, buy your product two times more than people who are not. Right. Right? So it's so effective that you spending your dollars in a place that doesn't have that is not working. Now, what this company Infosum allows you to do is you keep all your data, you build your audiences behind your firewall, but you can find your audience through People Magazine. I'm just using People as an example. You can find your audience even though you didn't share the information with the media publisher. And I think this is an idea that's starting to take off. It's early days, but starting to take off. So, a very long answer to a very short question, which is, Everybody's hungry to reach customers in a more cost-effective way. Everybody knows that when distribution has monopolies or oligopolies called Facebook and Google and Amazon, that you're never going to be able to cost-effectively reach enough people through those channels. And I think whether it's InfoSum or similar technologies to that, people are starving for a solution that, that achieves
0: that. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. Have you seen any CPG or tech companies that actually sell a physical product that have done a really good job of tracking where consumers were sourced either offline or online and tracing everything back based on sales and serial numbers?
1: Well, the best companies all do that, to be honest with you. And it's called attribution. And the actual term for it is last mile attribution. Let me just give you an example of the problem of last mile attribution. So basically, let's say you run a campaign and you decide, I'm going to spend money on podcasting. I'm going to spend money on radio and people hear about your product I'll pick a product, the Aura Ring, which I just happened to buy. Yep. I'm uh, not an too. investor. I just bought one. Should be coming uh, tomorrow, in fact. Ah, they um, sent me the wrong
0: size. So mine's Oh, going did back. they really? Yeah.
1: But oh, I hope they don't do that. So, I mean, actually, it was weird because they send you like a plastic sizing kit first. Yes. And you have to try that on and then you have to give it to me. The experience was a little bit weird, if I'm honest, but, but I understand why. So, in, in any event, so let's say you're the Aura Ring. And you run podcast ads and you run radio ads. And then what does a person do? A person goes to Google and they search Aura Rings or they go to Google and they search, you know, whatever, fitness tracking. And then they're like, oh, yeah, there's the aura Ring and they click on the ad. If you don't understand the top of your funnel in marketing and you just look at what's called the last mile, which is how they found your website... What you do is you say, oh, God, podcasting doesn't work. Radio doesn't work. Let's put all our dollars with Google. And then guess what? All of a sudden, your conversions go down. (laughs) Because you thought that it was all coming from Google when, in fact, Google is just the last mile. So there are actually tools that help you better track what's happening at the top end of your funnel.
0: Yeah, misapplied attribution in a lot of cases, especially early stage startups that don't have a lot of bandwidth and people to focus on that.
1: Or the experience and sophistication.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just heard a pitch actually from one of our companies called GeoBit last night that are doing a lot of this last mile attribution, and it was pretty awesome to see. But you know, I feel like we we got to touch on the elephant in the room. You know, very timely topic right now. Coronavirus is is spreading rapidly, impacting the markets. Uh, we've got an upcoming election. We've got a potential market correction. Give us your thoughts on. These these effects right now, and what you see over the next six to twelve months, and the the impacts on you know the startup in the venture space. Well,
1: it's interesting in a, in a, in a way, which is it's like the opposite of the elephant in the room, because at least an elephant you can see. Like it's funny that the human vulnerability comes from something you can't actually see. Right. So let's uh, take on coronavirus as a starting point. So first of all. As we sit here today early March 2020, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty about the rate at which it's spreading and there's uncertainty about the mortality rate. And, you know, mortality rate at least as I'm reading today is anywhere between uh, 0.8 and 2% of the po- of the infected population. Now, I was listening to a podcast that was describing this. If it's the upper end of that range, that's 20 times worse than the flu. And what the gentleman was saying, it was on the daily podcast that was saying is if you have two percent, it doesn't mean that necessarily you or your family or your kids or your cousins are going to die because the healthy population is not impacted that much. But what it means is almost certainly somebody, you know, is going to die from this. And that just doesn't happen with the flu. Wow. And so when you think about Your parents or your grandparents, depending on your age. I mean, I look at my mother in law is 82. My mother is 76, I think. And, you know, that's a vulnerable age in the population. You know, one of the things I haven't talked about publicly is one of the things that I started dialing back my blog post last year is my father passed away. And when my father passed away, I just needed a period of time where I just wasn't publishing and I didn't feel like writing and talking to the world. Sorry. Um, Oh, no, I, thank you. It was a year ago. And uh, in any event, like my father, in all likelihood, died from the flu. So he had Parkinson's. And people with Parkinson's have compromised immune system, and particularly their lungs. And what my father actually passed away from is called sepsis. Basically, he got an infection. It infected his lungs. He was sick and that causes body to go into sepsis and he went into the hospital and they had to induce him into equivalent of a coma now that's just the flu like uh, i think in this flu season alone 46,000 people in the united states have already died from the flu now it's one thing to say this is just the flu but if it's 20 times worse than that you know you could see upwards of a million people die in the us like that's not small and the reality is we don't know yet. And so we have to wait and see. But there's one thing that's clear, which is this concept of social distancing is now widely understood, that that is, if you're infected, the most important way to not spread the infection. If you're in a community where it's already you know, somewhat being dispersed, you probably employ some amount of social distancing from other people yourself. So who's going to be impacted from that? The there's obvious intermediate people, hotels, airplanes, trains, but honestly, restaurants. Like if two percent of the population is dying and you suddenly which may or may not be the case, but you suddenly find out that, you know, a good friend of yours' mom just died from coronavirus, you're probably not gonna to go to the local restaurant where the wait staff are putting their hands on your plates and handing you a plate of food. Nope. And the people who are most vulnerable, as usual, are the people of lower income, who are not on fixed salaries, who are dependent on, it's going to impact busboys, it's going to impact dishwashers, it's going to impact house cleaners, it's going to impact nannies.
0: Disproportional and effect on lower disproportional
1: income. Disproportional. And, and just think about the people who have hourly wages and are reliant upon that. Who suddenly now for sixty days might have their kids at home every day? Whoa! So I think society is going to be reasonably challenged by this, and that has to have a knock-on effect on the economy. So, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if you read the book Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan, but if you haven't, it's amongst the best, most influential books I've read about investing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's it's a fantastic read, and what he basically said is. If you look over long periods of time at indices, like the vast majority of money that's made is made in a very short number of periods in which you have a major event that people couldn't anticipate that massively changed the trajectory of a market. And the reason he called it a black swan is throughout all of history, people thought there were only white swans. And as we develop better technology to sail around the world and discover new lands, they discovered a remote island that had black swans on them. So, until that time, it was unknowable. So, examples of black swan, 9-11. Yep. Like, everyone's operating with this idea of continuity. And then one day, everything changes. And that was 9-11. And things have never been the same since then. And, you know, the world after 9-11 looks different than the world before in different and unpredictable ways. And so we often don't know what is going to cause it. Like 2008, the event was uh, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Now, the momentum was already building for 9-11, like the you know terrorist networks and the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda. It just hadn't crossed our consciousness to a point where it changed market outlook. Mm-hmm. Everything that was going on with uh, subprime lending and collateralized debt obligations and You know, all this kind of risk that was being built into our system prior to 2000, it was already there. But like the discontinuity, the black swan event caused the outlook after that to be totally changed. We have been in one of the most unprecedented periods of history in the last decade. Like we have defied all logic that from March of 09 until March of 2020, it's been up and to the right. In everything to do with the United States economy, with our stock market, with our tech funding, with venture, with everything. And I don't know what the next two years hold, but I suspect that this will be a black swan event. And I suspect that there will be a resetting of things like valuations. I suspect there will be a period of time where, because what what investors don't like is uncertainty. So when you enter a period of uncertainty, then people just say, you know what? I'd rather just wait and see what happens. So the wait and see what happens could be a month, three months, or 18 months. And so my advice to founders, to startups, isn't the same as my advice to investors, but to founders and startups is, there's two things that change this equation. One is cash, and the other is burn rate. So do what you can to load your balance sheet now and do what you can to cut costs and extend your runway. You know, the, the analogy that I'm going to give next week in my talk at Saster is, imagine this image, Costco in Seattle last week, and you know all the images were like these massive lines outside of Costco of people going in to stockpile. Yep. I bought my stuff 30 days before that because I was paying attention to Wuhan and, Wuhan, and I was paying attention saying, you know what, there's going to be a run on supermarkets, and I, I'm not an alarmist. But you know, I might as well have extra cereal and rice and meat and disinfectants and stuff in my garage. Thank God I can afford to do that and like be able to buy some of this stuff in advance. But I want to do it now because when the general population discovers this, you're going to have a massive queue outside of Costco. I mean, literally said that to my wife. I think the same is going to happen in funding. I think whether so they so the flu, the uh, COVID COVID nineteen or coronavirus is meant to start peaking late March to mid-April in the US. And it's meant to, and nobody knows for sure, so I wanna not pretend like I have a crystal ball, but if it's anything like the Spanish flu of 1918, they predict that it'll go through like June or July and then start to wane with the hot months. But what happened in 1918, which may not be what happens with coronavirus, is uh, starting in October, it got much worse. So far fewer people were impacted and died, October through February, Late 1918 to 1919, then even caught it in the spring. So, even if we go through a period of, oh, like the world's not ending and this thing is waning and life is good, I suspect it's going to come back with a vengeance. And if it does, you're going to see lines at Costco, but instead it's going to be lines at VC firms. When that happens, it's not like VCs suddenly say, well, let's fund five new companies. They go into something called triage, you know, triage a term from like an emergency situation, which is I have 20 patients on a war field and I have two doctors. I can't treat 20 patients at once. Okay. Those five are going to die anyways. I have to let them die. Let me focus on these four that are savable. And those five, you guys are fine. Like come back to me like two days from now, I have to treat these five patients that are Mm savable. And VCs go through triage too. Like, you know, you have 20 portfolio companies, you have 80, you have 150, I don't know how many, but you're going to say, which ones are going to die? Which ones are savable that we have to spend all our time trying to get them through this tough period of time? And let's not take on any new patients right now. And then the good news for entrepreneurs is VCs have raised so much money in the last five years that eventually they got to put the money to work. So it's not about whether you can raise money, but there's two things I would say. One is there is likely to be a period of uncertainty. It's not for sure, but I'm just saying that's what I think will happen. And number two is valuation expectations may be possibly greatly reduced after that period of uncertainty. So if people were willing to pay, make it up 12 times trailing uh, SaaS ARR six weeks ago, after the period of uncertainty, they might be paying four times. And Mm -hmm. so I've been telling businesses, even since Q4 of last year, I'm saying, stop waiting to hit milestones to raise your money because you may hit every milestone you think you're going to hit and still get paid 50% of the price. And they say, how is that possible? I'm making progress. And I'm saying, it's possible if investors take a different view on how businesses are valued. And if that happens, like you're going to take a haircut. So get your cash now, put it on your balance sheet and live to fight another day
0: well and a lot of that discretionary capital probably dries up like the the co-invests and you know the, the angels and family offices and funds will have capital under management but a lot of that
1: i don't i don't, I don't even want to go down that path because we could <laughs> yeah. spend an hour on yeah, that we could, but yeah. i've been telling this to people for years which is when market corrections happen angels are hit first and the hardest follow-on investment of party rounds and syndicates is impossible and doesn't happen and you die. Having a very strong lead investor that has a vested interest in your 10-year journey is the best way to build long-term shareholder alignment. I'm a big VC, so of course, everybody, when I say that, says, yeah, but you have a vested interest. You're just talking your own book. Maybe, but I actually happen to believe it. (laughs) <laughs> and I also was an entrepreneur for a decade. And I believed that when I was an entrepreneur and I've been like, I'm 51. I've been through, I think, four economic cycles and I just, I've seen what the other side looks like and it's not pretty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. couple wrap up questions. Mark, what resource could be a book, blog, video article, have you found particularly valuable that you'd recommend to listeners?
1: Well, I think the book that challenged, there's a series of books that challenged me the most to think about the world in a different way than I'm used to thinking about it. And so for me, that's the start of anything great. The author is not relatively well-known. His name is Peter Zahan. And he wrote a book called The Accidental Superpower. And I would start there with The Accidental Superpower. And it basically says, how did the world come to be the way the world is? And why is the United States so dominant globally? But he goes through the history of how societies got built, how societies traded, how societies protect themselves, what their natural resources are. And then, um, you know, he told me a lot of things I didn't realize, which is he basically says the United States, if you look at it, the things that are obvious, right? We have oceans on both sides of us. So we're geographically protected from being attacked. I didn't quite realize just how hard it is to attack another nation from a, a naval perspective land attacks are much more effective than water attacks, which is why England has been protected for so long, and which is why Germany has had such a hard time protecting itself through history because it's surrounded by land masses of hostile neighbors, which is why Russia has had a hard time historically. I think Russia has 11 borders, if I'm not mistaken, and Germany, five or six. So the U.S. was protected from that. But the second thing is we have approximately and i may slightly misquote this but approximately 22,000 miles of navigable rivers and the nearest country to us has 2500 and no, nowhere else in the world has anywhere near the navigable rivers and the important thing about navigable rivers again i might slightly misquote but it was from memory about 17th the cost of transportation so during the industrial revolution We were not only as cities, uh, great cities like St. Louis and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and Chicago, creating products that were much cheaper than the rest of the world could, but we were transporting them and trading with each other at a fraction of the cost. And all of this created excess capital, and that excess capital didn't have to be spent on defense. So, what it got spent on was deep water infrastructure to have navigable ships. It got spent on rail. It got spent on creating a national highway. It got spent on building education. So, America had these inherent advantages that I often don't think about. So, then he started talking about something that I also spend no time thinking about, which is fracking. And he started talking about how fracking has given us an advantage in oil. That means that the U.S. is no longer totally dependent on the Middle East for oil. So what he basically said is the U.S. is going to pull out of the Middle East. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. Like, I read this eight or nine years ago. He wrote it pre-Trump, but it was like a prediction that Trump would emerge. It was a prediction that world disorder would emerge. So it's called the accidental superpower. And it's so steeped in data that it's just like for me a gold mine. The second book he wrote was called The Absent Superpower and that was the argument of what does the world look like when the US does retreat. And he goes back through history and talks about Bretton Woods, Mm post-World War II, how we protected the world's trade. And he basically said, the world has been conflict since human evolution. The only time of no conflict has been post-World War II. And the only no conflict has generally been ocean-based trade because the US has guaranteed ocean-based trade for everybody. But he basically says the US isn't going to guarantee that anymore. So he predicted like, I don't know, call it a 50 to 100 year war in Asia, where every nation is going to be at war with each other over one thing, which is distribution of oil. And he calls it the tanker wars. And he goes country by country around the world and says, how much oil do they produce? How much do they consume? How much do they import? Where do they import it from? And what's going to happen in a world where the US doesn't guarantee deliveries? Fascinating read. And then he just launched his third book which I think is being published maybe this month. But he came and spoke at the Upfront Summit because his first two books like, so blew me away. And so we handed it out at the Upfront Summit. It's called Disunited Nations. And it basically is what's happening in the world country by country, and why is the world moving towards more unilateral positions country by country, and what's going to happen to the US? What's going to happen to Japan? What's going to happen to France and the UK? And he goes country by country. Brilliant read. And it just gave me a framework for thinking about how the future may look. You know, reading this stuff, like I forget the saying, which is, you know, the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed, meaning that we, you know, if you work in the tech sector, Oftentimes you know where things are going to be five, seven, 10 years from now, and the rest of the population doesn't have the insight because they don't work at that sector. I felt like these books gave me that. So you know, I feel like reading them, I was pushing portfolio companies to move production out of China two years before anybody else. Based on the books, and you know, he predicts much stronger alliance, and I think this is starting to happen between Canada, the US. and Mexico. And basically says, we're going to retrench mostly from Asia, mostly from the Middle East and Europe. And that trading block is going to become the most important in the world. And he goes country by country and says, how much does each country import? How much does it export? How reliant are they on external countries? And the US is the least reliant major nation in the world. And I can't remember the stats, so I'll probably misquote it, but I think it's something like, 80 plus percent of all of our consumption, maybe 78 percent of our consumption, is domestic already. So, in a world where there's less global trade, the US is more insulated. Whereas, if you're 30, 40, 50 percent already dependent on third parties and global trade starts to slide backwards, you've got to figure a way that you're still going to get the resources you need to feed. Uh, your population and to provide them with products that they're expecting to consume. And that changes the world as it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like fascinating set of, set of reads there. And just a, a big frame reset for me sitting here, you know, I'm often thinking about tech and these startup companies, but.
1: But that, uh, but that's it. You and me, we spend all our time thinking about like, what are, you know, is VR coming? You know, is <laughs> yeah. AR coming? Yeah. You know, we don't think about how oil, you know, for example, you talked about petroleum, And how petroleum is an input, not just to plastics and other things that we know, but even to fertilizer. And he basically was going through Latin America and saying, where are they not going to get oil? What impact is the lack of oil going to have on fertilizer? What impact is the lack of fertilizer going to have on agriculture? And what impact is that going to have on feeding their population? And basically, who's going to starve? Amazing. I don't spend time thinking about that, but when you do, you're like, okay, you know, I have a, a new framework or rubric for thinking about how the world may be five or 10 years from now.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I've come across some similar positions having to do with water as opposed to uh, petroleum or some of these other inputs. But to round out the interview here, Mark, uh, what do you know you need to get better at?
1: Well, <laughs> this will sound terrible, Nick. Uh, but at 51, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not going to get better at the things that I would like to be better at. And, <laughs> come on, Mark. But, but no, but no, I don't mean that I can't improve. What I mean is self-awareness yeah. is important. And I have ADD, You know, been diagnosed. It's not a terrible thing. It actually works well for me. I publish a lot of stuff on it. But because I have the self-realization that I do not have good Organizational functions in my brain. That's not how my brain works. Partnering with people who are really process driven, have better follow through than I do, complimenting me. So, you know, we have 10 partners at Upfront, eight are investment partners, two are not. So, my partner, Stuart Lander, who's our chief operating partner, who basically runs the firm. The job of running a firm, of doing the portfolio accounting and looking at reserve policy and dealing with you know, LP information and doing forward planning on budgeting and things that you know need to happen, but isn't your skill set to do. Having someone who's so good at that and so complimentary to you helps you perform better. It's almost like, you know, like looking at a team and thinking, okay, I've got a great quarterback, but unless I have receivers, like a great quarterback is wasted. So my Philadelphia Eagles has Carson Wentz, but unless we have receivers that can catch his passes like we're not going to win games yep so i've just come to this realization and i I believe it about companies and people in general which is i don't buy in the philosophy that we should spend all our time trying to make our negatives positive so much as we should recognize what we're good and bad at and we should lean into our superpowers and we should find ways to complement the things that we're less good at because i'm simply not going to take the way my brain is wired and be process-driven. It's just not going to happen. So the realization, I think, itself
0: helps. Definitely resonates with me. My, my big brother came and joined me about a year ago, and it's been transformational because <laughs> he keeps the trains running and keeps everything organized while I do what I do. Just at the end here, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Well, listen, as someone with ADD who's not process-driven, <laughs> who, doesn't, who doesn't believe in playing defense, I'm not particularly good at email and I don't use as an excuse. It's just, it's a place I go to like get crushed by the number of people who want things from me. And I just can't spend all my time doing that. I'm a very public person. I respond to people on Twitter. You know, I interact with people on Facebook. I, you know, have an Instagram account. I try to be out there and social and public and interact and, You know, there are people over the years who politely, you know, prod me on Twitter or provide information or have a conversation. And then you've been doing that for a year. You start to recognize the names and the people. And, you know, of course, everybody does this. Then you're like, who is that person? And you click on their link or their bio and you try to read a little bit about them. I just think it's a long game uh, relationship building and I'm pretty public and I'm curious and I like to know people and I like to know people who think differently than I do. So I find that valuable. So I just say that's the best way is probably through public social channels other than
0: LinkedIn. Got it. Well, there you have it. He is Mark Suster, the man who needs no introduction. You know, one of the biggest brands. We so appreciate your time. And it's good to hear that you've got flaws too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Nick. I appreciate your time.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Mark. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you.